Interview number 99, Emil Wolfgram, Carrying the Pacific Island Storytelling Culture Forward. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I am so thrilled that you have made it here with us. And I am so excited to share with you someone. I'm here at the Talk Story Conference in Waikiki, Hawaii. And I've just met Emil Wolfgram. And I just watched him um, do a little presentation. And I actually invited him to come on the show yesterday when I saw him run this amazing ceremony of greeting. And he is a a water carrier of sorts. And he is... A gentleman who has inspired me in terms of his ability and his willingness to reach back to his ancestors and to seek out what they have to offer him through the, through the historical narrative. And I'm really interested with him in, in today in, in speaking with him about, about that concept of, of passing the water of culture from one generation to the other. And if we as storytellers all around the world, and many of us are are in splintered cultures or destroyed cultural narratives, and if if we as storytellers want to own our, our narrative, maybe we should go to someone who is actually having some success with that experience. And we should ask that person how they have created that success. And so I'm really excited um, Emil to have you on the show thank you very much it's a pleasure to be here um, I've been doing this for from about 1993 and um, uh, one of the things that I do is um, translate um, the older the better uh, chants of uh, from Tonga the kingdom of Tonga which is the um, only kingdom in the uh, South Pacific Um, and uh, it is also a small country that uh, is made up of about 173 islands and uh, the land area is collectively totaling um, 265 square miles which is not very big but the people are ancient. They've been there since 1450 BC. Uh, well, we know that from uh, curious archaeologists who have taken the time to dig up uh, pottery shards, dated the charcoal from that. Um, and we've lived, my people have lived there continuously since uh, that period of time. Now, collectively in the world, um, 1450 BC is halfway through the uh, long experience of the uh, children of Israel's captivity in uh, Egypt. They, they were in Egypt for 400 years. So 1450 BC is about halfway through there. So we are 200 years away from Joseph between Joseph and uh, two, another 200 years before Moses is born and put into the bulrush. So, uh, but es- essentially we are a young branch of humanity, uh, the people who occupy the ocean deep. Our word for ourselves is Kaumuana. We are the people of the ocean deep and all peoples who live in the islands of the uh, of Moana. Moana is the name of the ocean deep. Yeah. Do you have a story you can share with us? That- uh, well, the stories that that I deal with is uh, 
um, were told in my family, and uh, that's one of the great things in my youth was I was I was always around to hear the stories and uh, chose to be around just like my siblings and um, although I grew up in an immigrant family by the age of five years old we were in my family had moved uh, my parents had moved to New Zealand so I grew up there 14 and a half years but much of our experience at home we spoke only Tongan at home some some English for those of us who were bilingual but Basically, it was Tongan because of my mother. Uh, she was always a first language speaker at home. And uh, it's a great thing that she did that. So we retained the um, understanding of the language. But my dad uh, was, a, was a bilingual. My mother never became truly fluent in English, but um, that was fine for her to live in her own world. It was just wonderful. But every so often, like every other month, my dad would gather his friends and relatives and they would hold almost all-night sessions. So they would start out with religious and then political topics and inevitably ended up in the myths and legends. Because his friends came from uh, islands, uh, although we were Tongan, we also had people who shared their stories or versions of the same chapters uh, who were Maori who were Rarotongans who were Samoan, Fijians and uh, consequently um, we could recognize the parallels between certain uh, legends and mythic heroes uh, by far the Maui stories are the, the ones that hold common among all of them and uh, each locality has its own localized versions, but they are actually um, uh, cycles, chapter cycles, and then episodes. Uh, but it's a it's a great thing. And so, well, some of my favorite memories was during the winter time, uh, we would be huddling in the um, in the hallway by the living room where everybody was holding forth their stories and sometimes we would wake up in the morning still sprawled on the floor of the <laughs> of the hallway if our parents hadn't found us to take us to our own beds we were still there wrapped in our um, blankets on the floor sleeping because we had fallen off while listening to these stories and um, those stories are deeply embedded in uh, in me and uh, also in my children and grandchildren um, I now live in Hawaii, marry, having married a Hawaiian girl to my great fortune, and we live in the country. And uh, on the full moon, I hold what is the uh, Mahelani Ahaina, which is the moon festival, where I tell stories to the um, my grandchildren. That is now being renamed as Mahina Mokopuna, which means the grandchildren's moon because they're the ones now who have grown up and they've, they're the ones who make the umu, the earth oven, cook for everybody. But they, everybody shows up for that. All the grandchildren show up to do that. And uh, it's quite a festivity for our little family. Yeah. It's the only way we can keep them from diverging. You know, my children married other people's children and there's a divergency in interests and pressures of raising. So I could see this, but by... Um, Calling their grandchildren in, they all assemble because of what they are their co-generational relatives. And they're going to serve. They're going to cook, and they take pride in that. And and they pull in their my my children who are now parents. And they are more attentive now to the same chapters I used to tell them as children, because they've got to answer all the questions when they go home. <laughs> so. Um, the Tupaheo style, which is the one that I do, um, actually came to me through translating uh, these old Tongan chants. And then one of them is uh, called Laulangi. Uh, that's the chant about the ten skies, the sky worlds. And actually, it, it's the chant about uh, looking for the signs regarding weather and season change. 
also as um, changes of uh, lo- local um, uh, weather weather zones. So it's a teaching chant. It's everything. It's actually um, uh, it it helps you when you're studying the weather patterns to look for certain signs, and then afterwards the observation becomes keener and you understand what what zones of the heavens that these certain heavens actually name and uh, you can actually predict the weather after a while you can see certain uh, patterns now, the navigators can always at the setting sun kind of almost um, for the next several days can tell you at what time what weather will come in to the region but um, that, but it starts with these uh, ancient chants and it, that makes your uh, local um, uh, personal acuity and vision the elemental signals of the biome tells you where where there's going to be wind shifts what the temperature drops going to be yeah so it's all all good stuff but anyhow uh, I got to the end of that that work and I looked down there and I said oh my goodness uh, you see this thing called tupa every so often, tupa, tupa, and then after this last tupa, eh, they said koifakamatala, and I said what? Koifakamatala means this is the explanation. So, and that's that triggered tupa and then isa, that term. I said, oh, this is the conclusion of that system of storytelling. So I put all of them together. Uh, that was completely absent from my family. Um, that's because we just, I guess my 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 family, my ancestors, had focused on capturing the uh, poetic visions of the stories, not so much the story form. But in my translation, the story form came together. Then I reconfigured it and revived it. It was completely absent, dead. Now I have selected about seven of the next generation. Some of them are relatives, but they're bilingual people. Um, that's another thing. Um, I'm the first generation to tell these stories in a language other than Tongan. So for English speakers, these are first times that they don't hear these stories in its Tongan form. The other thing about it was that in... Um, Translating. I was translating a text that's, that was first published in, in a sequence, uh, in a series, starting in 1908 and finished in 1928, about. Now, it was not translated in English. It was printed in French. There was a Catholic uh, priest, his name was R.M. Reiter, and I wouldn't be surprised if he came from Belgium, but a French speaker. And uh, he must have come out to Tonga quite early in his life. I think he would have come out before he was 20. And then he lived his entire life practice in Tonga. Then uh, retired, I guess, to Honolulu and died. But um, I'm still tracking him down. But RM writer, what he did was he was teaching he was a teacher and he noticed that the Tongan people had changed from the generation he when he went to Tonga okay and so what happened was he recognized that Christianity had changed the people and they were less Tongan I guess they were more Christian and uh, he sent his students out and and charged them to take only the old stories and then when they got them together, he wrote in Tongan, and then published it in France as Apropos, that was the name of the magazine, and it came out in French. Well, it just happens that coming through the English, uh, the New Zealand system of education in my generation, I had to take a uh, foreign language, usually a colonial language, Spanish, um, French, uh, German, yeah, those are all colonial powers, right? So, I chose French, and for my four years of high school French, I still remember. 
And I, well, the reason why that's important is because I was reading the Tongan. That was my primary text. But every so often I noticed there's 148 paragraphs. I numbered them. And every so often the, uh, the, the Tongan becomes garbled. It's no longer Tongan. And then what I did was I went to the French to straighten out the Tongan, the garbled Tongan. And um, because my French is still good enough to do that. And then I completed my work. Now, later on, it dawned on me, the reason why that it sporadically went into garbled Tongan was because the typesetter was French. And Frenchmen always drink wine with their meals. <laughs> so the garbled Tongan must have been straight after lunch for the typesetter. Being French, he always he did not misspell his French, but he didn't care about the Tongan. <laughs> so that's the only explanation I have for this, uh, for that misspell, yeah, in the things. But I straightened that out from the French, and um, uh, there will have to be a later book on that. It's uh, it's kind of hilarious, but the guy was a wine bibber, I guess. <laughs> Isn't that something? But anyhow, um, when I got to 144, and mind you, I did this in two weeks. I was actually living in the computer room, because I didn't have a computer at that time. And I was uh, doing my translation in Hawaii at Wynwood Community College. So I got uh, approval to use their computer room, and right across there was a ablution block, you know, for men's comfort station. So I was comfortable. I put down a mat on the floor, had a love lover as my blanket, and so I would type and translate all day, all night, until I went to sleep on the mat. Well, when I got to 144, after two weeks of grinding it out, I think it was about 12.30, I must have dozed off at the keyboard because I woke up and I saw a lot of the same uh, alphabet, uh, num- you know, a letter, like an S. for so many screens, you know. And I knew that I was I had dozed off, so I deleted the, my mistake, my dozing uh, mistake. There was a lot of pages. And I realized I had to go to sleep. So I went down uh, early in that morning and I had a dream came to me in Technicolor and what it was is all that information the stories that I was translating uh, came as a genealogy scheme laid out completely for me now I woke up when I when I saw this this dream and I had the presence of mind to get up and go to the white uh, board right and and draw it I went back down on my sleeping mat to sleep and I was out. So two hours later I wake up, it's daylight. I'd forgotten the dream, but I looked up at the board, I had it up there. So that was a great blessing. And um, now the consequence of that is that uh, I completed study little by little and reformulated that whole thing. That That's what I call the cosmogony from Tonga. It's actually the genealogy of the gods and how they account for us human beings and all the forms of life that uh, surround us in the Oceanian world. What is... Uh, so that that started me on this long, continuous um, Retranslation of uh, many of the ancient uh, Tongan texts, and when I got there, I realized that this thing just walked in on me. Just said, "Here I am. Here's the Tupaheo narrative performance," and uh, so it had completely disappeared from Tongan experience. I think uh, that's and uh, probably a consequence of um, the missionaries. The Christian missionaries begging the chiefs to ban the um, the t- telling of these old stories because there happens to be the, uh, the way that the old island 
way of performance was you started out with the full session on the, let's say the Tupaheo narrative performance then it's followed by a sequence of um, singing the same chapter it's rendered in music and the entire and the entire population of that island sings the whole thing in in different parts so they sing that for a couple of hours now that's at least almost four hours and then they get up to follow that sequence they get up and sing and dance it as a as a stage production by the entire island splendid into musical and the choreography performance there was nothing that the missionaries could do to compete with that how, how are you going to compete with Broadway every day so they asked the chiefs to you know, please tell those guys to do it every six months or once every other year and slowly it dropped out of practice the, the actual form of the storytelling which is called the Tupaheo narrative performance uh, completely disappeared but the stories were retained in certain families and our family was our clan was one of those that kept those stories some of those stories alive they didn't have the whole cosmogony no I found realized that the half of what what we had was actually only one half of what could have been there and then as I translated all that he captured uh, his students had captured uh, I ran across a work by Sione Moala who was independently doing it on his own and he went directly he lived and died in Tonga and he actually published with no English so I ran across his work and it's just elegant it's much more richer than more detailed than uh, what Ryder did way back in 1908 that's amazing so my dissertation has um, has has some uh, academic impact is small but it's uh, in that uh, it's now entitled the, Nar the Tupaheo Narrative Performance Knowledge as Tongan Allegory so see being a primary oral society Tongans didn't have writing but they mastered poetry through storytelling and verse so that they were indelibly uh, uh, inscribed by their own work to keep themselves whole. Yeah. And uh, it's been a great, great experience for me to do it at this point in my life. Yeah. Since I got into storytelling, I realized then that these stories have been uh, told a billion times at least over these years, you know, 3,500 years. This is Doug Elliott, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Walt. I notice one of the things that is common uh, among indigenous storytelling around the world is that there are certain terms in the stories that are inherent to the population that someone outside of that geography wouldn't necessarily understand. Um, a great example is uh, there's a famous story, Jumping Mouse. It's from the it's it's from the Sioux and the Plains. And at, at one point in the story in Jumping Mouse, they talk about the sagebrush. And you know, I hear that, and I thought, oh, it's a sagebrush. It has some whole some sacred meaning. And and later I discovered that sagebrush indicates there's not a lot of water there. And so the character was the character knew inherently that that meant there wasn't enough water in that place, and that was actually part of the story. That they didn't say it; they never said there's not enough water here. Yes. Um, but it was just inherent in the story. And I'm just wondering in these in these old ballads, were there terms like that that you had to discover the meaning of the inherent meaning um, through the place, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, one of the things I found through the cosmogony is um, uh, they are actually localized, and the localization of the story, right? Of let's say a, a series of chapters, which becomes then a cycle. Uh, that cycle of Maui in Tonga ha was taken like that, let's say, next door to Rarotonga, and in, and as it's localized in Rarotonga. For instance, um, the entry to the underworld, 
The cosmogony, mind you, is when I say cosmogony, it's a system of organizing the stories in their order, right? And it also tells you the world view as it uh, pertains to our living space as human beings, as mammals, right? Remember, on the, each island, the old, anciently, the human being was the largest mammal, okay? I mean, there were larger mammals, but he's a, he's a whale. He has to stay in the ocean deep uh, for oxygen, and uh, and that he's he. So he's becomes the biggest uh, beast of burden. That's why we have a carrying stick. Right, right. That carrying stick comes with us as we, as our ancestors step off Southeast Asia and get down to Tonga. It takes them almost. They, might, they go very quickly through Indonesia. They're not the first people that step off, but they're the first ocean voyaging people. That So they actually come with this technology of navigating without instruments, and they move through those islands, thousands of islands, very quickly, and they get into where Tonga is. Um, that process is about 2,000 years. But once they get that long-distance thing down, they go around the world very easily every other year or so. Uh, in their sailing season. The other part of it, it comes down to, uh, that's localization, what I call localization. So the living skills, the technology that comes down is applied, reapplied into that new locality. Tonga has hardly any fresh water. We're dependent on, on um, rain and well. Other than that, uh, we're not anything like Hawaii. We're one fortieth the size of Hawaii. Well, Hawaii has rain, you know, has uh, uh, waterfalls, it has rivers, it has lakes, freshwater lakes. I mean, this is the jackpot of Oceanian living. Once you got to Tonga, here to Hawaii, you never want to go back to Tonga. But uh, Tonga doesn't have those those benefits, right? So, but they're masters of of predicting when rain will come because they need it to know that. So they're 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 observers of the moon. And the stars. So when they're sailing, especially out way out in the ocean, they watch for those the tremor of the moon. That's when the air starts to make it look like it's it's wobbling, it's trembling, and they can predict then how when water will come to their locality. Now that's what we're talking about: the signs of the biome regarding their well-being that became well noted for them, and they symbolically lock it into the stories. Right. And then as these young people grow, then they are taught the symbols that belong to the land by its story, by its chant and its story. The same chant and story is then read into the water, into the ocean. The same chant and story is then locked into the air. So after they go through that transition, that particular Sounding the memorization has all these multiple signals around them in their biome, so they know then in a certain season a certain relationship between land and sea, land and air, air and ocean deep, air and sea, reef, and um, and it's not written; it's all carried in these. Uh, these soundings, these memorable, memorable soundings, because once you learn these proverbs, once you learn these stories, they become fixed. And the beautiful thing about it is they take these uh, symbols that exist only in your mind and they lock it into their environment. So you look, you look at a tree, you look at a, at a mountain, and you'll have a, a signal there that triggers your mind. You'll start looking into the sky, look for a certain constellation in a certain season. So even though these stories were written down for over 90, over 100 years, basically, you still could read them and they still could trigger in you this experience. Yeah, that's it. Uh, because of the soundings. The soundings uh, and related to a story, right? Then you look at the symbol of the story and it leads you, I call it self-discovery. You start looking into the symbol and its meaning and unlocks further uh, cache of, of information for you. And then you go into nature and look for it, 
for those for those for that information. Using that as a guide, you start looking for those signs. That that's already in the environment. Now that process, locking the poetic vision into your environment, I call that cosmism. Yeah. And so that you're taking something that is non-physical, symbolic, and locking it into something that's in your environment. Yeah. And and Tongans and other Moana people, Hawaiians included, are masters of that, of that practice of locking locking their symbols into the environment. So actually once you understand that, the stories themselves become your curriculum for teaching human values. Even this is something that I came in and, and teaching the awareness of a space, teaching how to be a natural, a native in a place. Because you you are taught by the stories the way to behave in sustainable lifestyle with the environment. That is correct. That's precisely so. You've got it right on the head. And and, and that's one of the downfalls of um, the Christian man, modern man. Like, like, for instance, let's take an example. Let's take a guy from Norway. So this is this is really exciting idea we're talking about, this idea that stories can be used to teach... And I've been obsessed with this idea my entire life, that stories can be used to teach correct environmental behavior, that stories can be teached to teach human beings, in my opinion, how to become correct human beings. So go back to your Norway, what you were just saying about Norway. Um, Scandinavians are very interesting to me. Uh, The Scandinavians represent the first uh, continental people who eventually become deep water navigators. Uh, they make that great achievement uh, by about the year 900 AD, which is about 2,000 years after my ancestors did their thing, which is 1450 BC. They get down to Tonga, they, kick, they cook this uh, sea creature, which is not a uh, fish. It turns out to be a uh, sea crocodile. Right. So... And they cook it over there in Tonga. And for all the urban dwellers, you know, crocodiles aren't ocean-going creatures. I mean, you actually have to take the crocodile, put it on a boat, and transport it a thousand miles. Oh, two thousand miles while it's still alive. Still alive, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, and and the closest place to get a seawater crocodile is uh, where Crocodile Dundee is supposed to be, who is actually a... uh, a white knockoff of an aborigine, right? In Australia, right? We won't go into that <laughs> colonization of certain uh, native people. But um, anyhow, uh, t- apparently Tongans ran across the sea crocodile in their wanderings. And um, but mind you, they're going they're going now to the uh, to the west, right? Right? They're going west where they're coming from, right? They have the capability of going west, come over there, and they see the sea crocodile. Well, anyhow, the guy who digs up this bone and carbon dates this umu, that earth oven that where it was baked in Tonga, his name is Dr. Richard V. Burley, and he's from Simon Fraser University in Canada. Yeah, and that's because Canadians are very progressive, yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, he gets down to Tonga and finds and he, he and he makes this presentation. I happened to run into him uh, before uh, that's 1979, He's down at Bishop Museum, and after he makes his presentation of these findings, he says, uh, "Any questions?" I put up my hand, and he says, "Yes." Uh, uh, what's the question? He said, "I said, um, do you have a story for this?" for the sea crocodile being cooked in Tonga. And he says, oh no, being a scientist, right? Now, I have a master's in physics, so I understand that mindset. They're very careful. He says, uh, as a scientist, he says, "Uh, oh no, I don't have a story. I just report what I I found, and um, anybody else can check it out, right? Reproducible evidence, as they call it. So I said, I got a story. And he said, oh, yeah, (laughs) what is it? I said, I know why it was cooked, and I wasn't there. I mean, this is 3,500 years ago, but I know why it was cooked. 
And he says, yeah, <laughs> I'm interested in hearing that. He says, well, I'm a traditional storyteller. <laughs> he says, okay. I says, I know my people because they're shaped by these stories. And he says, okay. And he said, well, if I was a Tongan member of that crew and we get over there and we see this this water dragon moiling around in this water and we say, hey, let's take that for our gift to our chief. So we chop down a telephone post. No, I'm sorry, it's a tree. <laughs> Everybody laughs. I said, no telephones, right? Okay. <laughs> Aborigine era, yeah? Aboriginal era, right? So we chop down a tree <clears throat> and we tie the sucker, all right? We wrestle him. We all, all 20 of us targets jump on it, right? Poor, as big as strong as that sea crocodile is, doesn't have a chance on 20 targets on top of it. And we tie him up. His mouth is shut. Tie him up. Everything. His arms and that. We put him on the canoe. As long as we can get back in two weeks, we can bathe him with seawater. Keep the temperature down. Because he's a reptile, right? He's energy driven by heat, right? I mean, in his case, he's got to be cool, right? So, uh, we keep him alive. He's got enough fat to keep, to feed himself, right? But now, everybody's smiling. They like the story. <laughs> now we get into the thing. We, we, we carry our dragon, water dragon, we tell him, right? This is a moko. moko This is a sea dragon. We take it to our chiefs and we orate our gift to him. Now the poor, now the, now the elder brother who is our chief, paramount chief, looks at this gift that bounty has brought to him all in one day, right? He has to decide how to, what to do with it. Then he looks around and sees hundreds of people in the Malay to witness the sea dragon, this water dragon, right? The sea dragon that was brought from, from overseas beyond the, uh, the horizon. And the wonder of it all, he decides to cook it and feed everybody. Wouldn't you do that? That's a nice way to get it, the circularity of relationship cemented, right? And to share the experience, the power of the, of well, the his, creature. His, his, his paramancy, his, his august station, status rises according to how much you eat of that beast. And if it's treated right with enough salt, his glory shines that day, right? I mean, it'll read down through generations exactly as it is, right? Well, apparently, the guys who went and cooked it knew their business, right? Because when it came out, right, after it was baked for hours with the right amount of heated stone from the stone and, and steam, it, it was polo uto. It's, it's a term we use in Tongan where the flesh is so soft and well cooked, it's like almost on the verge of gravy. And so the bones that are, and the skeletal bones, rend right through the meat as they're picking it up. I, I can even lick my fingers as I'm telling you this. <laughs> so they didn't get all the bones, right? Some of the bones went with the meat, but some of it stayed back there with the charcoal. Along comes Richard Burley, right? Dr. Burley from Simon Fraser University. Mind you, it's, it's a Canadian university. I don't know where America was in those days. But anyhow, he's come scratching along, finds out this is not a, a, a sea, I mean, it's not a fish, right? right? This is a fish eating people, but hello, this is, my goodness, it is a sea crocodile, but where the blazes when it comes? So anyhow, I'm telling him the, his story, right? The story he never had, right? He is smiling. He has this big smile on his face. This doctor is his big smile. Doesn't even dare open his mouth to say, couldn't happen, right? He's enjoying this because and he says, I can even taste that, 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 that sea dragon. And I wasn't even there. And so everybody is happy. It's glorious, right? So here he comes along. Years later. 3,000 plus years later, and he finds these bones. So we know from the charcoal, he takes the charcoal as well, and carbon dates it, and sure enough, it, it's that old. And so we know then that they had long-distance voyaging at that time, 1450 B.C. Now the Norwegians, their big pride is that they... Oh yeah, we were talking about the Norwegians, weren't yes. we? <laughs> yes, the flip-flop of the other guys, right, <laughs> who are trying to be 
Uh, what, what, how do we say that? Navigators. Ah, I think that's the big thing, yeah? Navigators. But they still have to use instruments. They still have to have the compass to tell them where north is. Right? That's because nature moves. The systems move, right? They move all the time, right? And, um, and so they're the great, great, uh, what do you call it, European model, right? Of, of seafaring. But they still, they still have to. We can still navigate with no instruments. So that's their big thing. Well, anyhow, Norway. And for those of you who are listening and going, no, yeah, there's actually a National Geographic special where they got some of the old guys together and they built one of these boats and they went all the way to Hawaii from some of these islands in the Pacific on a boat with no instruments, with no compass, with nothing. Go on. Sorry. Back to Norway. Well, they had something. They had the story. Yes. They go by the story, right? That says, look at nature here, there, wherever. And then that's where the compass is, right in the environment. Well, anyhow, what happens is, what happens with the Norwegian is, he is whole. I mean, he is authentic Norwegian until he gets Christianized. Along comes whoever, let's say it's whatever, and they come along and they give him a story of the Holy Grail. Right? In the Holy Grail, this this individual hero, uh, if it's Sir Percival, let's say, right? He is so godlike and majestic, but he's an individual. He leads and finds the Holy Grail where the where uh, Christ uh, drank from or his blood went into, whatever, uh, depending on which version you were dealing with, right? But that's individualism. He is separated, that hero is separated from his clan. Right? And when that happens, then there's another legend called the Wasteland that comes, that is born out of Christianity, which treats nature now as an enemy. That's why you have the, the great saga in American history of the wild, wild west. And in that environment, even the people, the native, Native Americans are wild. Right, because they're part of the nature environment. Because they're part of nature, right? even even the cockroach is wild, right? Yeah. So anything that's not with the immigrant oppressor is considered part of nature and therefore wild. And that's all because of the wasteland and the Holy Grail uh, stories. So what that does, it takes now the European man, makes him something apart from his environment. And makes him into a colonized savage. Because now he doesn't see his environment as friendly. Therefore, he can now rape it as a business commodity. Yeah. And so, everything, nature is not good. Yeah. And so, the false stories of progressivism comes into play. Let's just talk about this idea you were talking about at one point earlier. Um the idea of water and the idea of plumbing. Yeah. Uh, being somewhat tainted by my uh, Western education as a physicist. When I got into storytelling and I did all this translating, I said to myself, my goodness, this is, uh, stories are only software. The hardware is the storyteller, right? And I used that for a few years. Then all of a sudden it came to me, that's too technical. That's too techno, right? I says, I'm too American, because all my university training is American. I says, I've got to save myself from myself. So I started, all of a sudden it came, it dawned on me that actually it's water. Yeah, software is actually water. It has definite volume, right? But it has no definite form. Then the storyteller is hardware. He's the container. Whatever, whether he's feeling good that day or he's angry that day, it shapes the containership of the water. So in the translation, in that, in, in telling the story, it, it morphs, it morphs the water. When I got to that, realizing that we, I'm actually a water carrier. I'm a carrier of ancient water. Right? I, I ran across the Tongan term for that, which is Dovai, water carrier. 
So I sometimes went tongue and say, hey, Emily, I'm not going to get fired. Emil, what is this thing you're doing? I say, I'm a man who's a water carrier. They say, oh, and the water, what is that? I tell the story. Ah, they understand it immediately, right? That that it has definite volume, but no definite shape. Right? Now, what is the great genius of the Tongan system is that the storyline is invariant. It's fixed in the chant. It's invariant. I cannot do anything to the storyline. So, I might be the thousandth generation, right? But I cannot change the storyline. However, it's crafted with enough relative freedom that it's character poor. The characters are named, but they're not fully uh, fleshed out. So guess who carries the characters? It's the storyteller, the water carrier. So if there are two or three primary characters, then they, they all each take on the qualities that's imbued by the storyteller. Not only that, by doing that, creating that space, every telling is essentially an update of that old chapter, according to the, the water carrier in his circumstances. It's brilliant. So brilliant. That's why we don't need Hollywood. We've never had needed Hollywood for 3,500 years. And for the next 3,500 years, we don't need Hollywood. Because Hollywood cannot top these, these stories. I mean... I see myself as a water carrier for the for the rest of my life, you know. I'm 68, right? I've been doing this for what, almost 20 years. Oh, 20 years about. I mean, yeah. When I was still good looking and above average. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm but and I know mortality, you know, is is uh, beginning to look Enormous, <laughs> but and when he comes in and embraces and carries me off, that I'll go happily. You know why? Because I still got the story. In fact, he's going to be happy because I'm going to tell him the story, right? And that's why he hangs around. He doesn't step in and say, "Been very rude to me," and say, "Rip me off," and say, "Hey, you going home today?" He wants to hang around because he doesn't hasn't heard all the cycles, right? So that's my work, and my work is to bring these old things. Now, this is another interesting thing. The verse itself forms me, shapes me. Uh, what I've found is that now I can compose the missing chapters. I have some of the chapters, but apparently at one time there was a whole whole line of chapters. Do you think there's families on the islands that may have some of these chapters and they just haven't? Have you have you gone and looked in some of the communities? I've asked around and and a lot of uh, all of them come up with the same story. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't help you. So what I've done, this is the beauty of the poetry. I've gone back and you know these these ancient chants, I, I know this how they how it's put together. So what I do is that the missing chapters I'm beginning to to formulate the missing verses with the tupaheo in it and with the tupas in it so that it eventually will plug it, try to plug it all up so that at least one full cycle and then another cycle and go on and on until you have to come next door to hear it from me when I leave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to give our audience a chance to ask you a question. Hi, this is Mary Hamilton. I'm a co-founder of WOW, working on our work Storytelling Weekends, and you are listening to me on The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. My name is Charlotte Blake Alston, uh-huh. and um, I'm curious to know if there are other water carriers, if this is a tradition that will be continued yes. once 
the arms of death come to, <laughs> to take you away? That's a great question. And uh, what I've done is that I've started to select my apprentices. And I've given them my translations. And they're, they're going through it. They're both bi- they are bilingual. Mostly young women who are bilingual, very smart, like you, good-looking and above average. And, um, but I'm bringing along men as well. Right now I have seven, seven of them. And uh, clearly when I, cry, when I die, they'll be the ones who'll be my official whalers because uh, what I've done is shown them what I've done. I don't really teach them. I just tell, I answer their questions. And they, they're going to formulate their own style and delivery according to their capabilities. Uh, and that's why I encourage. It's much easier that way. But I do have to um, answer a lot of questions, deep questions. Um, on the um, conceptual side, as you know, cultural questions, right? What, what turns out as the names of the gods turns out they're not people. They're actually human values. That's the beautiful thing. Is the encoding is unbelievable. That when you look into them as human values, then you can get into another system that is called, what I call the system of regard. That is actually the, the human values that make, that form the Tongan style. It's like the ancestors have spent so much time in their lives investing in this and developing this and wisdom and in receiving this. And it's just there if you're willing to spend the time opening it up, leaf by leaf, step by step. Yes, well, you know, in a Tongan uh, cosmogony, the belief is that between your shoulders, and if you put your arms touching each other, yeah, this, this space here is called the sacred space. And everybody has this. And this is the area, that's why... Uh, especially the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the clans, nobody dares reach in to touch their head because this is the place where their ancestors come to them. Everybody's ancestors come to the head and whisper and and give them inspiration, aspirations, guidance so that they become the living source to irradiate, to re- irradiate out the uh, the wisdom, the blessing to the to their families, immediate and extended. We participated in a welcome ceremony uh, or arrival here at the Talk Story Conference here in Honolulu. And I just wanted you to speak a little bit to the importance of ritual. Why is ritual important? Well, um, ritual again gets, engages. One of the powers of uh, ritual is uh, the ritual itself is a form of instruction. The symbol is within the ritual, and the ritual will manifest itself within the emotion in some form. Now, in that ritual we did, which is called an encounter ritual, uh, we actually split the people into two camps. One was the host, right, the Hawaiian or Kanaka Maori, and then the Malahini were all the visitors who came in. But the visitors come in with their own mana, with their own spiritual power and status. That's because they're travelers over the ocean, right, out of the realm of the sea god, Kanalo. But the person who welcomes them, the host, the Kanaka Maori, manifests the mana of the authentic people of the land. Now, by talking to each other, we touch each other. We touch each other through sound, right? And eventually, we close everything by by rubbing noses, which is called the honey. We touch each other and look into each other's eyes. This way, nobody is excluded. That's the genius of it. And the circle is complete. Once you touch the Kanaka Maori, you in turn cease to be Malahini. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer just a guest. You become family. And you now have been imbued with the power of the land, the host land. And now you have the right to behave as a family member, which is a good thing. Then inclusivity gets rid, rid of artificiality of ranks and power and all of that. Uh, the other thing is, is that 
it brings everybody to the same level. You start out in tuple, which is restriction, right? We cannot touch each other at that stage. But as we close the gaps until we touch each other, right, we become we come into a, a status of parity. And that's always good. That's equality, yeah, of humanity. And that's what it stands for, yeah. And I see that it starts from um, appearing, and you end up as one, but we still go to another level of pairing, which is a, a parity status state. It's an emotional state. It is a, it's an inclusive state. Yeah. So that's in peace. You were joking last night that the that the guests in the ceremony lose their guest status and now become family and have to go home and do the dishes. Yes. We, now he, now they can come in and, and, and sweep the floor with us, the, the, the host, and, and we can now uh, wash the dishes together and do all the, the common things that's unseen, right? Uh, the wash, wash the clothes and, and go out and you know, catch the fish now, right? Of course, he may not know his way around the, 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 the reef. You know, the, the, the vocals can still set him up, right, for failure. But I mean, it's all good fun, right? He's got to learn. He'll learn very quickly to learn uh, where not to go, right? And then those kind of things happen, yeah. But that's humanity, right? That's humanity. It breaks everybody down to the commonness, yeah. Well, our common denominator of time is rapidly upon us. So do you have a way that people can continue this conversation with you? Do you have some... um, You are currently completing a PhD out of New Zealand? Yes, uh, I'm doing it at a, a Maori, the only Maori um, tribal college that has a PhD, and that's at Farewananga Awanuiarangi at Fakatani. It has an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, with University of Auckland. Now, New Zealand, uh, people in the academia may know this, but the world does not but in the last 50 years in cultural education research New Zealand is number one numero uno and um, everybody looks towards New Zealand because of their bilingualism now academia has to go towards multi-language now if someone is of Tonga background um, or, or Hawaiian background? Are you well? Are you Pacific Islanders? Are you interested in them contacting you for building? You know, connect- yeah. Um, the best way to do that is co- do it through the uh, internet, uh, email. Yeah. Uh, that way, I can filter out you guys. <laughs> but the, the my number is uh, my email address is T as in Tom, M as in Mary, P as in Paul, C as in Carol, zero one at gmail dot com, and then. If I want to talk to you, I'll give you my telephone number. <laughs> Put $20 in the mail and maybe you'll get the number. But anyhow, that's basically what I, what I do. And then, um, yeah, we can contact them on that basis. I have two offers I just want to tell you about. The first offer is that I'm putting together in April 2010 an environmental storytellers retreat in Yellow Springs, Ohio. If you... If you type in www.eco-story-2010.blogspot.com, you'll go to the website. If that's too complex for you, go to Google, any Google search box, and type in eco space storyteller space retreat space 2010, and it will come up. It'll be the first thing in Google. If it's past 2010... I might be doing another one, so send me an email with your interest if you're interested in participating in the Environmental Storytellers Retreat in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Um, also, I'm, I have an ongoing interest in creating an art of mentoring, and there's, I have a whole show on the art of mentoring and bringing back people back into the environment, which is what we were talking about, using storytelling to educate individuals into being in balance and what I would consider uh, being in the creator's purpose for us as human beings, which is stewards of the land, and not stewards in the sense that we use it, stewards in the sense that we take care of it. So when he comes back, we can say, hey, look, we took care of the place. <laughs> um, so the art of mentoring, I'm interested in having an art of mentoring in Yellow Springs. We, I haven't had enough interest yet to put that on. So if that interests you, please send me an email outside of the normal, normal stuff. Um, and, and another step, I know a fair number of Pacific Islanders will listen to this show. 
So I have two resources for you. Um, the first resource is my website, www.artofstorytellingshow.com. As of this date, there are 99 hours of shows about the art of storytelling and how to be a storyteller and all the skills and possible influences you could ever want on how to develop as a storyteller. Um, they're from all of the United States, all over the world. Um, but there is a slot there of Earth-based storytellers. And I would just suggest you go listen to that seven or eight or nine, whatever number it is currently, shows. And because that's native storytellers from all around North America and the world. Um, and the other resource I have for you is I have a Ning. It's a, it's a new word like eBay. So you go to www.storytellingwithchildren.ning.com. And that is an online community for storytellers who feel isolated and separate from everyone else. And you can share your work of working with kids and storytelling. Anyway, you got any last words for the international storytelling community? Yes. Uh, the wisdom in, in life is never get confused between the plumbing and the water. <laughs> uh, Pax Americana is only about rules of plumbing. It, it ignores the water. So the more we find the distinction between water and plumbing, the happier we will all be. Thank you very much. I, I think that this, the key idea here I love is an old story of you hire a plumber and the plumber comes and he, he gets the wrench out and he, you, know, you got the plumbing's all jammed up and he hits the, he hits the, the pipe and then he turns around and says, that'll be $300. And you're like, what? $300? You just hit the pipe. You didn't do anything. And he said, oh, you're right. Okay, here, $10 for the five minutes, $290 for the experience to know where to hit the pipe. And, and I think that as Americans, we have a tendency um, to think that that's enough. But the pipes don't work without the water in them. If you don't have any rain, if you don't have any water in your pipes, then the whole purpose of the whole apparatus, it isn't there anymore, you know? I mean, I've been to Las Vegas. I've seen the obscene amount of water that is wasted in Las Vegas in a place that does has no water naturally. I've been to these different landscapes where you see water being poured out like, like water, like water at the ocean, but it's a desert. Um, and I think sometimes when I when I meet children in the inner cities, when I meet when I meet children around the country, and I, I see them as people who are starving, and what they are starving for is they are starving for water. They are starving for water of the soul, the soul. And and what they need is they don't need plumbing. What they need is someone who's a water carrier. Because the water is carried inside the heart, the water is carried inside the mind, and if we, we can pick up that water, if we can hold that water and lift it, it's like that Holy, that, that Holy Grail story, but the better one, the, the, the rewritten one, where the, the guy goes and he, he gives the water to the king. Oh, what is that called? Um, oh, someone's going to tell me about email now. But at the end of the story, he blows it. At the beginning of the story, he blows it. He goes to give the water, and he sees the Holy Grail, and he drinks it himself. And everything's gone, and the kingdom is destroyed. And then he has to spend 20 years looking, and finally he goes back, and he gives the water to the king, which is, which is a symbol for the land. And just this idea that we need to stop doing it for ourselves, but doing it for our audience. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's been my pleasure. I mean, I'm happy to be able to add a little bit more water. <laughs> Remember that um, Pax Americana is only about rules of plumbing. Uh, I think we should spend more time uh, with the living water. Yeah. And thank you, Charlotte, for dropping in. Um, oh, just a note here: Charlotte Blake Austin has her own interview on the show. Go on back. Um, her interview is at interview number 69, Charlotte Blake Alston, Breaking Barriers Using Storytelling. And it's an amazing interview, and she's an amazing storyteller. I've seen her perform a number of times. Um, I have a whole list of African-American tellers, and she's a wonderful interview on the Cora and uh, music and storytelling. Um, that was great. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it.
This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. Spoken to a choral accompaniment, a combination of spoken word and wow. singing. Wow! Wow, that's wonderful. So I decided to. Yeah. Fifty years old, I studied. <laughs> Which that's makes her the the best woman choral player <laughs> in North America, <laughs> starting at fifty and probably in the world. Right. <laughs> you yeah. got it. Yeah. So well, that's uh, great. So where we're at the show right now, we've just spent thirty minutes talking, and we're just getting into. So I'm going to spend. I'm going to spend 10 more minutes just going back and forth, mm-hmm. and then I'll, op- or maybe 15 more minutes, and then I'll open it up. Turn up on the floor. <laughs> to the floor. Yeah. So, it, it makes the show so much better when there's an audience. Right, but I've, I've missed like 40 minutes of it. So no, no problem. 30 minutes. No problem.